Let's jump into uh, our psalms. You know, if you've been with us, um, or if you're returning after being gone for the summer, uh, we've been in the, uh, the first part of the psalms uh, over the last few weeks, and we've been focusing on these psalms and considering how God is our refuge. So we've been saying that God is our place of shelter from the storms of life. He is the source of our comfort uh, in our grief. He is the place of rest in our chaos, in the chaos of our lives, and he's also our home in an ever-changing, always-changing world. And it's that last one where God is our home in a changing world that I want to focus on this morning, and I think Psalm 8 invites us to consider as well. One thing that most people can agree on, whether they're Christians or not, is that our world and the culture we're living in is changing rapidly. <clears throat> For some, that is meant with, the news is, is, is welcomed with a, with a sense of relief that the world needs to change. For others, that news that the world is always changing is meant with fear and foreboding. But nearly everyone agrees, from academics to cultural uh, critics uh, to sociologists to everyone, really agrees that the world and the terms by which we live in the world is changing rapidly. And no matter who you are, that can be deeply disorienting. To live in the late modern age in which we do is extremely difficult oftentimes to navigate. But then there's another level. Certainly Christians experience this dramatic change deeply as well, because it's not only the mark of the late modern age uh, that it changes so rapidly, but we're also in an age in which we live that is deeply secular, meaning the reality of God, his purposes and place in the world is no longer as plausible as it once was. And the assumptions of his existence, of his goodness, of his power no longer uphold the cultural conversations, the relational dynamics, and the institutional realities that it once did. Which means that living in 2022, for those who are firmly committed to following Jesus, or even unsure and trying to figure out who Jesus is and what they believe, all of it can be deeply disorienting. Psalm 8 is a prayer for the disoriented heart. Here, David returns to the glory that God displays, the power that he promises, and the authority that he bestows on his people. And in the same way, this psalm reoriented David's strength and reoriented his heart. It's meant to do the same for us. As we pray it, as we read it, as we meditate upon it, as we let it sink into our hearts, it's meant to reorient us in a world that is so deeply disoriented. So let's uh, jump into Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the getith. By the way, we don't know what a getith is, if you're wondering. Um, it could mean, it, it most likely means an instrument of Gath, and Gath was the city that Goliath was from. So maybe there's a connection there with the story of David and Goliath. Anyway, a Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Would you pray with me? Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word and your truth. We thank you for this psalm of David that lifts us up to the highest heavens and reminds us of your patience and loving kindness towards us. And now I pray you would stir our hearts that by the power of your spirit, we would take refuge in you and these words would help reorient us to you, the one who loves us and saves us and sets us free. We pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Okay, well, before we dive deeper into this passage, I want to give you a story that I hope will illustrate what I'm talking about when I'm talking about uh, living in a world of disorientation. Um, And it's a story from one of my experiences. It's It's a roller coaster story. It's nothing really profound. It's meaningful to me. As a kid, I loved roller coasters. I rode them every chance I had. There was a good bit of time in my, as I went into my adult life and as I was getting older that I didn't have the opportunity to go to amusement parks. So I had been a long time since I had ridden a roller coaster. There was an indication, I was getting a few clues in my life that maybe motion sickness was starting to get in, starting to creep in as I got older. Things like getting car sick really easily, not being able to even look at my phone if I was in the passenger seat of a car, certainly not in the back seat. Uh, getting car sick when I ride in a cab and that little TV screen is on playing the same 10-second clip over and over again. Couldn't handle that anymore. But I ignored all that stuff because when it came to my son's birthday in the summer of 2016, I decided that I was going to take the family to an amusement park to introduce them to roller coasters. So we went down to Luna Park, which is in Coney Island in Brooklyn, and we thought this is going to be a great thing. And I was really excited because I was going to show them how fun it is to ride a roller coaster. (laughs) So we get there, we get started. The first thing we do... I had more clues before I actually got on the roller coaster. Uh, The first thing we did was went on the teacups. I don't know if you remember the teacups. They're kind of a classic ride. You sit in a teacup. You can have four to six people around, and you kind of move around. It's very mild unless you decide to spin it really fast. I was fun dad. I decided let's spin it really fast. Well, that set my stomach uh, on a trajectory that I still don't know that I've recovered from. We get off that ride. I am still... uh, not deterred from moving forward with my hopes of showing my kids what a fun roller coaster can be. The next ride was called the Air Ride. Uh, it was not extreme. Um, it was not extreme in its uh, risk. It was only uh, not extreme thrill, just high thrill, so a level below. It's not even a roller coaster. It is simply a ride you get in. I had my uh, oldest son, uh, Owen, with me at the time, and so we get in, we're riding together in tandem. And it's, you get in this airplane and you go around and around a circle, but it also flips you upside down just over and over again. That's all it does. It just flips you upside down. So this ride begins and uh, gets going. And um, I realized very quickly that I should not be on this ride. Um, Everyone's, uh, you know, shouting and enjoying themselves. And I'm being tossed upside down. And I become completely disoriented. Upside down, right side up. I couldn't figure out what was going on. And it was really quite unnerving. I lost all sense of direction. I lost all sense of time because I think the ride only lasted a minute. It felt like an hour. I had several religious experiences on this ride that I will not share here, but they were rather intense, and I shouted all sorts of things next to my young son that I now regret. So I get off the ride. I survive. I get off the ride. My stomach cannot recover, even though I'm trying hard. I'm dizzy. I'm nauseous. And I have to clear everybody out. The kids are coming, Dad, that's great. And I just get out everybody, clear out. And I sat on the bench basically for the rest of the afternoon while Jeannie took the rest of the kids 
on all sorts of rides, and they had a great time. And what I finally realized after that time was that my body can no longer handle the disorientation that comes from rides like that. I can't handle being thrown upside down over and over again. But it wasn't just the dizziness, it wasn't just the nausea, although that was definitely there. It was something more. So then I was curious about what was going on, so I eventually started researching and looking it up, and I found this article, and it described it, I think, very well, what I was experiencing. It says this, you hear the older crowd say, that's me, the older crowd, I'm never riding that again, or I'm out of sync now. The culprit is motion sickness. It happens when the brain's equilibrium sentinel, the inner ear, cannot make sense of the motion it's experiencing, and so it gets the rest of the body involved in a rebellion. The result? Nausea, dizziness, clamminess, vomiting, and sometimes, as the Center for Disease Control and Prevention puts it, a sense of impending doom. And that's what I had, a sense of impending doom. I think there's a cultural disorientation that we face and we feel very much to what I was feeling on that ride and on that day when we're living in the late modern secular age. And it oftentimes leads to a view, the disorientation we face leads to a view and therefore our lives are filled with a sense of impending doom. And Psalm 8 is intended to draw us back, to reorient us, to settle our hearts in the chaos of the world, to cast our gaze upon a God whose majesty has no bounds, whose power is perfected in weakness, and whose kingdom cannot be shaken. And so this psalm is intended to reorient us into all of that. I want to look at just a few ways that it does that. First, David is inviting us in this prayer to to behold God's glory. The first thing we do is we behold God's glory. David now has made it through his own very disorienting difficulty of fleeing from Absalom, and so his struggle now resolves itself in praise. Notice this psalm begins and ends with the prayer of praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David is overwhelmed with God's name, and so he names him twice, O Lord, our Lord. And as he does that, he's using God's personal name, acknowledging his nearness, his personal care. That's the first one where he says, O Lord, that um, the lowercase capital letters you find there, that's the, the name of Yahweh. This is the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. And, and the second name, our Lord, that David invokes, acknowledges God's rule and reign over the heavens and over the earth. And see, as David calls on the name of the Lord and praises him for his majesty and acknowledges him for his nearness and his rule, David is doing something very important to his own heart and and for his, his very self that's vital to him. He's taking himself out of the center of his world. He's taking himself out of the center of the world. He is acknowledging and delighting in the fact that he's not the ultimate authority, that God is. He is the one who is ultimately, he is not the one who is ultimately in control, but God is. And so this is the great reorientation that we need. Because one of the reasons we so often face the world with an impending sense of doom is because we've lost the sense of the awe and the wonder of who God is and what he's actually doing in the world. To praise God's name as David does here is to continue to look outside of yourself for glory and power, which in other words is to acknowledge that you're not the center of the universe and you're not even the center of your own story. There is one who governs, who guides, and upholds all things. And the same God whose glory extends to the heavens is the same one also who promises to draw near to you, the one who is governing your life. And David is delighting in that fact. 
David, as king of Israel, is saying, it's your name, not mine, that is great. It's your name, not mine, that is worthy of all praise and honor. And so through praising God, David is getting his bearings. He's getting his bearings straight. He's locating himself and his struggles that he has just faced. And he's understanding his role as king within a larger story. And the reality that, that has God and not him as the one who holds all things together. So if your world, personally, is spinning out of control, or if you're overwhelmed with an impending sense of doom at what you see going on in the world, it's good to lament. It absolutely is good to cry out and ask God for help. But the one thing also that's going to make you, that make the world stop spinning for you, and make your head and your heart stop spinning, is praise. Praising God for who he is. Delighting in his glory and his majesty. That's why when we gather for worship and we sing our songs and our prayers, we praise God. And it's not just a desire to be upbeat or positive or just, for the, just doing that for the sake of being positive. When we gather, we praise God not necessarily because we feel like it or not necessarily even because we've had a great week. We praise God because he's worthy to be praised. And nothing will, re will reorient you towards that God than offering up the praise like David does. So the first thing we are to do as we reorient ourselves in the midst of a disorienting world is to behold God's glory. The second thing we do is to trust his promises. In verse 2, and really all the way through verse 5 of the psalm, David then orients his heart towards trusting in the power of God's promise. See, when David says in verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger, he's not speaking generally. He's speaking very specifically. He's referring to Genesis 3, and he's referring specifically to Genesis 3, 15, where God makes a promise in front of Adam and Eve to the serpent who has introduced sin and chaos into the world. And this is what Genesis 3, 15 says. This is God speaking to, to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, it was this promise and even, that even through sin and evil, and even those, those things had established their foothold in God's good creation, God ensured that the enemy would ultimately be defeated. So this is the promise that Adam and Eve were to cling to as they faced the disorienting effects of sin and their own exile, as they were sent out of the garden and into a world that they did not know, as they were sent out into a world that they, there's no way they could have understood. This promise from Genesis 3, then, is the promise that Israel was to hold on to as they faced the disorienting power of Pharaoh, who wanting nothing more as they were living in a foreign place in a foreign land, Pharaoh wanted nothing more than simply to enslave them and break them of any hope and promise that God was going to deliver them. So they were to hold on to the promise. This was the promise that Israel was to remember as they wandered through the desert, oftentimes quite literally disoriented, not knowing where to go, totally lost, waiting and hoping for God to deliver them. And this was the promise that they were to hold on to as they were sent off later in their, later in their history into exile by one powerful nation after another, completely disoriented by the, the ruling powers of the world. Each time the disorienting effects of sin and exile became present, Israel was to remember this promise that God had made to them. And that's what David is now doing as he brings it to mind in Psalm 8. That it will be babies and infants who still the enemy and the avenger. 
God will make his power made perfect in weakness, in the weakness of human flesh, in the weakness of a baby. God will defeat all that disorients our hearts and our lives. So this was the promise that Mary hears when the angel visits her and tells her that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, this child will be born and he will be called Holy, the Son of God. So here's the Son of God, the great I Am, Yahweh himself, Jesus, taking on flesh, weakness in the form of a baby, to, as David says, still the enemy and the avenger. God answered Satan's roar with a baby's cry. And that's what David is trusting in, in verse 2. You know, all throughout the Bible, in the Old and the New Testaments, certainly in the Psalms, there's lots of places for despair. There's lots of places for frustration and sorrow. All sorts of ways and stories that express the experience and the reality of living, of, of, of having a disoriented heart. But you know what you don't find? You don't ever find a sense of impending doom. The only thing doomed in the Bible is evil and death and those who seek to align themselves with evil and death. That's who's doomed. But it's the promise of God that carries throughout, that carries the individuals and God's people and now the church throughout the world, in every age, in every situation, no matter the calamity, no matter what's going on in the world, it's this promise that's offered, that promises new life in Jesus. So much of the New Testament, and especially if you get into the Apostle Paul's ministry, he's always unpacking this reality that God has a plan for defeating the disorienting powers of the flesh, of sin, and the devil. It's first through the birth of Jesus, this baby born in a manger, But then it's also the death of Jesus. It's at the cross. See, to the world, that is weakness, foolishness, completely senseless, and utterly powerless. But to those being saved, as Paul says, it's the power of God. And when you make your home in the Psalms and pray them and bring your disoriented hearts to them and let them be your words and your prayers and your praises, you will find yourself being brought into this promise that God's name is great over all the earth. And he's made this promise that has come to fruition in Jesus and that will one day come to full fruition. So we are to behold his glory. We're also to look to and trust in his power and his promise. And lastly, we're intended, as Paul says in this psalm, to wear his crown. We have to wear his crown. I think part of what David is saying, or really the question he's asking in verses 4 through 8, where he says, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? David is asking, who am I, David? Who am I that you're mindful of me? So he's speaking in the third person. Who is the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. Remember, as David is praying the psalm, as he's writing the psalm, there are an entire army of thousands including his own son Absalom, who are telling David that he is in fact not worthy. He's not worthy of glory, glory. he's not worthy of honor, he's not worthy to wear the crown. He's only worthy of shame and death. And now having come through this massive disorientation, having contemplated God's glory and power, as he asks this question, he is reminded of this fact, that he is worthy to wear the crown. That's verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. I think Psalm 8 is so 
vitally important for us to pray and reflect upon deeply because when we do not, or when we refuse to behold God's glory, and when we do not, or when we refuse to trust God's promises, then the sad and dangerous result is that we forget who we are. And we forget what we were made for. And we are left to wonder, well, who am I that you are mindful of me? Without any answer that might lead to hope. Oftentimes the best answer to that question that when we look to the world and the late modern world and the secular age that it is, when we ask that question, well, who am I and what should I be? The answer we get is, well, whoever you want to be. You be whoever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. You decide. It's all up to you. And while that certainly sounds nice, and even on the surface, maybe a little empowering, I want you to know that there's nothing more debilitating. There's nothing more burdensome. There's nothing more disorienting than to be left to create and recreate your own identity, than to be left to create and recreate and bestow glory upon yourself. There's nothing more disorienting to the human heart than to separate yourself from the majesty of God's glory and the promise of his power. And to separate yourself from the crown he so generously bestows on those who trust in him. And yet, we do it all the time. But when you reflect on God's glory and his promises, and then ask, okay, what about me? Who am I, O Lord? What is man that you're mindful of him? What David finds and remembers is God has called us. God has called him and he's called us to wear his crown. In other words, having been made in his image, having been redeemed and saved by his grace. We now have the glorious, wondrous work of laboring and exercising dominion over all of creation, doing God's work in the world. That's verse 6. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. See, the glory that you are after, and you are most certainly after glory because you're made in God's image and therefore made for glory. The glory that you are after can only be given to you by the, God, by the one who has set the glory above the heavens, by God himself. And the purpose in your life, the purpose for your life, that you are so desperately seeking, and you are in fact seeking after purpose because you're made in the image of God, and therefore you're made for purpose. The purpose that you are seeking can only be given to you by the one who sets the moons and the stars in their place and has put all things under his feet. And so the reason David leads us in praise in Psalm 8 is because the very things that we're after, the very things that we need the, at the core of our being and the deepest parts of our heart, those very things that we long for, God so generously and freely gives us. I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at when he quotes this psalm in Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 9. Listen to this or verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while, lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him for who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And see, not only 
are we after glory? And not only are we after purpose, but we're also after all of us, no matter what you believe, are after some form of rescue. That's why we've become so disoriented. That's why we oftentimes live with this sense of impending doom, because we need someone to defeat the enemy and the avenger. Someone must come and finally defeat death. And what Hebrews tells us is that there was one, there is one, who's greater than David, who has come, one who ultimately is worthy to wear the crown, worthy of glory and honor, power enough, powerful enough finally to conquer death. And Jesus, like David, faced armies and legions, powers and principalities, religious and political leaders who were in agreement as they were with David on one thing, that he was not worthy to wear a crown, but rather Jesus deserved a cross. He was only worthy of scorn and shame. So they gave him not a crown of glory, they gave him a crown of thorns. But in his resurrection and in his ascension, Jesus now reigns, having suffered and now conquered death. And now he is worthy to wear the crown. And we, having been saved by his grace and mercy, having put our faith and our trust in him as our true king, well, we now reign with him. We wear his crown. We receive honor, not because we've earned it, but because God is gracious and kind to bestow his glory upon us. So as you face the disorientation of your own hearts and minds, perhaps the disorientation that at times may lead you to a sense of impending doom, remember that you were made to behold his glory. You were made to trust and rely on his promises. And you were made to reflect his glory, to wear his crown. So let Psalm 8 bring you back to the God of refuge and take refuge in Jesus, who makes all of this possible. And then offer yourself to those around you. Offer yourself to those who have become so disoriented by a world that is so ever-changing, that is so deeply secular, that is that has taken the hope and the promise of God and the reality and the plausibility that he is good and kind and powerful out of this world. And in your life, reorient them, invite them back to this God, to the God that David finds in Psalm 8. And in your praying, in your suffering, in your serving, in your labors, in your studies, reflect the glory of the one who is worthy of all glory and honor. And reflect that to your friends and to your neighbors. That's what David does in the psalm. He's inviting others, he's inviting us to behold the majesty of the God who has put his glory above the heavens. And the place where we begin to do all this and experience all of this is here at this table. Because when we gather at this table, we behold the glory and the wonder and the majesty of God who would set aside his glory for our sake. Who would set aside his glory so that we could be fed and so that we could be nourished. Here at this table, we are reminded to trust in his promises. It's this bread in this cup, this body broken, blood outpoured, that remind us that his promises are true, that he has still the enemy and the avenger. And we gather at this table, we wear his crown. Not because we've earned it, not because we even deserve it, but because God calls us to this table to participate in his work in this world, to feed us and to nourish us, so that we would go out and tell the world of this God who is our refuge and our hope. In the midst of a disorienting world, even in the times of our own disoriented hearts, this table is meant to reorient us to that God who serves us, who nourishes us, and who sets us free. Let's pray.
Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you call us to this table. We confess to you and you know that our hearts are so easily disoriented and, and flee from the one who calls us to himself, which is you, who is you. So God, I pray as we come to this table that you would draw us closer to you. Whatever might be disorienting our hearts, may they be settled because of who you are and what you have promised to do. And may we then go and do the work that you've called us to, serving on your behalf and in your name to a world that so desperately needs it. We pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.